We give our attention now to the preaching of God's Word, which is found in the book of Galatians and chapter 3, and particularly verses 13 and 14. So what we've read in prophecy from Isaiah 53 and what we've read in history from John 19, we now read by way of explanation in Galatians and chapter 3. And again, we see the great unity of the scriptures as they, though giving perhaps different vantage points, do uh, unite in the same singular truth. Now we read Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. These verses, of course, come in a particular context. And it can be, of course, helpful simply to fall upon these words and to consider them, but there can be more help as we look upon them in context. And most immediately, you'll look to the beginning of this chapter, and you'll notice Paul is correcting and reproving God's people. He calls them not merely Galatians, but, oh, foolish Galatians. This is perhaps at first glance a strange way to address those whom he has earlier uh, spoken of as brethren and as those for whom Christ gave himself and gave himself for our sins. Why is he calling them foolish? It's because though they professed faith and knew something of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had turned themselves unto the law of God, both for their acceptance and advance in the way of godliness. They had taken their eyes from Christ, their peace, and turned their eyes unto themselves and their obedience. And so Paul's reproving them. And yet, as a most gracious and wise steward of the mystery of the gospel, he does so by likewise directing them again to their only hope, which is in Christ crucified. And so this comes to us by way of correction. It's correcting God's church who had strayed some degree, doubtlessly various ones straying by different degrees, but all of them some degree straying from the simplicity of Christ crucified as their peace with God and as the securer of all privileges uh, by His grace. So we look then at verses 13 and 14 and you'll notice that it comes more immediately, verse 12, by speaking of the law is not of faith, that the, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. And so Paul's contrasting the way of acceptance and peace with God by the law and the way of peace and acceptance with God by faith. And this is an important theme throughout the scriptures. Theologically, these ways are known as the covenant of works that was established with our first father, Adam, and continues to this day saying there is peace for those who continue in all points of the law. But here's the fundamental problem. We from the womb have gone astray. So we stand under a broken covenant. We stand guilty both because of Adam's first sin counted to us, but also because of our sins that we have committed. And so Paul's pointing this out. Listen, if you think to turn to the law, be sure of what is required. It is required of personal and perpetual obedience to every jot and tittle of the law if you hope to have peace that way. And yet he shows the covenant of grace, which is by faith. Notice in verse 11, no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. That is the way of the covenant of works is shut off. And he says it is evident for the just shall live by faith. And so the way of acceptance with God and peace with God is by faith. And it might then raise the question, why? Why is it so that by faith we have peace with God? And now he presents to us the reason. Because he presents Christ. Notice, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
Christ has made payment for what the law demanded. He, it says, was made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. The significance, of course, of the cross being made of wood, that he himself was hanged upon a tree, and there testified of being made a curse, and accursed by God. To the end that, notice verse 14, the blessing of Abraham, all of the promise bound up and handed to Abraham, should then, as he says, come upon the Gentiles. How so? Not by obedience, not by their law-keeping, but rather, he says, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit, not just that of Pentecost, but rather all that the Spirit conveys, that we might receive it through faith. Well, it reminds us that the heart of man by sin is ever seeking to earn favor with God by his works. And even the believer is not freed entirely from this temptation, but there are subtle ways that it creeps back into our lives. And it can start well because the believer understands the law of God is good. And we desire to see it more perfectly inscribed upon our hearts and governing our speech and thoughts and desires and actions. But then there can creep in a subtle temptation to start leaning upon our work as if that's the cause of our peace and acceptance with God. And when that comes, there's need, as Paul reminds the Galatians, to be reminded of our peace with God is a gracious peace purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way of life, the way of acceptance, the way of salvation is by grace, and particularly by grace through Christ. Now notice a few of the words in the text. You have this word redeem, Christ hath redeemed. This idea has to do, of course, with uh, purchasing, but it has not just the idea of purchasing, but purchasing unto deliverance. And so God redeemed his people of old, and he did so by purchasing them unto deliverance. And the same is true most fully of what Christ has done. He has delivered us by a purchase. And what price did he pay? Notice the language. He purchased us being made a curse for us. You'll see this word appear in different forms throughout this passage. The curse of the law, a curse for us. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. This idea of curse warrants some attention Because in our day, the word curse is typically used simply to describe certain words. Now, it's important to understand the background of that. So we speak of curse words or cuss words. And the word curse has to do with condemnation. And so in our day, there are some words that actually aren't, though called, they aren't actually curse words. They're just crass They're things that the Christian should avoid because of their crassness, because our speech is to be noble and pure. So we don't say that those so-called four-letter words are equal to the other words that are truly curse words. They're simply crass, and they should have no part in the speech of a noble believer. But there are words that are rightly considered curse words. Because they're words which speak of damnation. And so the words that are related to that, of hell and damnation and all of its forms, those are words that are properly called curse words. Because they are speaking, the meaning of those words is a pronouncing of divine judgment for sins. It's condemning one. It's invoking God to condemn And it is, of course, the Christian that ought to have a special regard to his speech. And sometimes we can say and think, because our culture is so loose in its speech, we shouldn't care about those things. But when the heart is renewed, and the heart trembles at the law of God, and trembles at the notion and nature of damnation, the Christian leaves off those weighty words, reserving them, for the weight that they are to bear. Whereas the world makes light 
of cursedness and cursing and damning and speaking of hell and all of these things, the Christian has gained a little sense of what those words mean. And so as we think about that, we turn then to this text, which holds forth the weight of a curse. So it's not light and trivial and crass language that ought not to be found in a Christian. It's weighty and meaningful and heavy language. To be brought under a curse is to have the full weight of God's justice crashing down upon a weak and puny and wicked sinner. If you wish to see little perspectives of it, you can see it when, for instance, Achan is consumed, Sodom and Gomorrah is consumed, the world, world is consumed by the flood. These things are curses upon them. You get a fuller sense of it when hell is open before our view. That's what a curse is. It's for God to unleash the fierceness of His wrath against sin. And it says, now notice, Christ hath redeemed us being made a curse for us. The text is telling us that Christ took on Himself that condemnation. Christ took on Himself that curse. And this then is fulfilled in His being hanged on a tree, which was a divine sign of cursedness. The text tells us that this is to the end, that the blessing of Abraham, of salvation in all of its various dimensions, should come then on the Gentiles by faith. Well, we'll consider this more fully, but for now notice that the text is telling us that the just punishment for violating God's law, the curse, the damnation, the condemnation that was deserved by His people has been suffered and paid in full by Christ. And so consider then with me these three things to help us. Firstly, a just curse... Secondly, a gracious curse. And secondly, a blessed curse. Uh, We might be struck at first, how can this curse be both just and gracious and blessed? Well, we'll work through that. But first, notice there is before us a just curse. It is a testimony of the blindness of fallen man to deny that he deserves hell. It is a testimony of his perverse and ignorant soul that he should not realize he deserves condemnation. Notice the text. It speaks of the curse of the law. And so, whereas the world has all of its cursing founded on nothing, the Bible presents a condemnation, a damnation, a curse that is founded on something objective. What is it? It's the law of God. The law of God tells us clearly, particularly, concretely, what is good and right and what is wrong and wicked. And so the law of God tells us, as Paul says, the law is good and just and holy. It's something that the renewed man delights in, With his heart, it's as the psalmist speaks of throughout Psalm 119, of a longing for and a delighting in and a meditating upon. But when we think of what the law does, the law fundamentally speaks to us and tells us and teaches us, informing us what is right and what is wrong. It can be summarized, of course, as Christ does and elsewhere the scriptures do, when it speaks of, The law is summed up in this, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are the twin pillars of all godliness and all that's required, that our hearts would be given, our bodies would be given to loving and serving God and refraining from whatever doesn't do that, and that our hearts and lives and bodies would be given to loving and serving our neighbor and not doing anything that would Uh, uh, go against that. The law declares and commands what is right. And remember that the law is not of men. The law is not invented by culture. 
The law is given by God. We see this in a number of places, but you can see it most clearly in the Ten Commandments. So Moses comes up, and God then declares, and with his own finger, as the scriptures say, writes the very words of his law upon the tables of stone, and they then are taken and placed within the Ark of the Covenant. They're there signifying the wonder of holiness that this ark, which was God's throne, was a throne of holiness. It was a testimony of God's will, God's revealed guidance. And likewise, the soul, even as is testified in the passage before, the man that doeth them shall live in them, and the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So remember this. When you speak of God's law, there is the division, of course, into those ceremonies and offerings and so on that were required for a season under the Old Covenant. There are also those rules and regulations for Israel as a nation, so long as it continued. But then there is that law of God which stipulates what is right in all seasons, in all generations, throughout all history. And this law of God informs us regarding the same. Now, the law doesn't only do that, because what the law also has embedded in it is the pronouncement of guilt unwavering against all who sin. And so here it speaks of the curse of the law. The law informs, directs, guides, and it's unwavering. It doesn't flinch. Not like You know, a grandparent or a parent sometimes can say his or her standard only to be appealed by the children or grandchildren and lessen it. The law doesn't do that. The law doesn't bend. The law stays clear, pristine, pure, perfect. It doesn't flinch at our worry and anxiety. It doesn't see our terror and say, oh, I'll relent. The law is steady and stable, ever testifying of whatever and always is right and demanded. And remember, this is the communication of God to us. God doesn't flinch. God doesn't say, my law is now changing. God's law remains. Some people have said, well, under the Old Testament, you know, God was strict and he was zealous for his law. And under the New Testament, he's not. Well, it's strange to have such a thought. Because when we read the Word of God, what is it that God inscribes upon the heart of His regenerate people? It's my law. He inscribes His law upon their hearts. And so it's not a different law. It's the same law that is held forth. What is it that Paul says he rejoiced in after the inner man? It wasn't some relaxing of God's standard. It was the law of God. The law of God stands secure, stable, certain through all ages. And when it is that someone fails to keep it, it comes with an instantaneous testimony of condemnation. You have failed and stand guilty. Now we have to acknowledge that our world doesn't know what to do with guilt. Our world doesn't know what to do with shame. And so there are some who say, well, there's no such thing. And anyone who brings up guilt or shame is after us in a bad way. But we ought to remember that guilt is embedded by God in disobedience. And when Adam and Eve felt shame for their sin, God didn't say, don't feel shame. He actually reproved them and he cursed them. These are the things of God's Word. That guilt and shame are necessarily connected with disobedience. And when a person or society starts to go away from guilt and shame, what is certain is a distancing from the understanding of God's law. There is a necessary connection that when we sin, Our consciences smite us and say, you stand guilty, and we're ashamed of it. We ought to be ashamed of it, because what's actually happened is a looking to Him who is most beautiful and satisfying our lusts upon what is most hideous. It's turning from what is good unto what is evil and malicious and damning. And so it's understandable. 
the law adds not just the guilt, but the pronouncement of a curse. It resounds with the thunders and lightnings of Sinai and testifies with continued confirmation throughout the scriptures, the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah, the curses from our Savior's lips against Bethsaida and Capernaum and other places where he did his most mighty works. Woe unto thee! What's he saying? You stand condemned. The curse of God is upon you. The law guarantees condemnation. Before we pass on, consider this for a moment. God doesn't flinch or hesitate when the last day comes from pronouncing with unrelenting clarity, depart from me, ye accursed. Do you understand that? That's not some, you know, groundless, high-flying idiot. That is God who says, depart from me, ye accursed. The last message that the unbelieving and impenitent sinner will hear from God will echo and remain with increasing volume and agony throughout all eternity. I am accursed by God. And their horror will envelop them instantly and will continue. And as they look for some drop of mercy, oh, Father Abraham, just let Lazarus dip his finger in the water and let a drip fall upon my mouth. And he'll say, it can't be done. There's a great gulf fixed. There's no mercy, no compassion. There's zero. You had your day. And now having despised my mercies and treaded my law underfoot, you stand condemned and accursed. And on that day, there will be no complaint. None shall say it isn't fair. It's not righteous because the only thing it is, is fair and righteous. That holy God should execute His threatened judgment against all, accursing them for the sins that they've committed against His holy law. So, the curse of the law is a just curse. And brethren, if you and I have sinned, this ought to be, by the principles of righteousness, applied to us. But notice, secondly, we read of a gracious curse. You see this because whereas there is the curse of the law which you and I by our sins deserve, it says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. To understand this benefit and blessing, we have to understand what we've just covered. If we don't understand that you and I, by divine principles of righteousness and testimony, having sinned against God, justly deserve to be consumed for all ages endlessly by the wrath of God, we'll never see the wonder of this truth. That Christ was made a curse for us. Think of who it is that has made a curse for us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the glorious One. He is the One who never spoke a word contrary to God's law. Not only that He exercised Himself, though His heart was full of iniquity, never to speak. You and I know what that is. Our hearts get amped up and we're ready to blow forth all of our words of sin. And yet we refrain ourselves by some exercise of the will, and yet our hearts are all unsettled, and we've sinned within. That's what Christ testifies when He says, listen, if you, you've heard it written, it's, it's written, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of it already. The same is true of every sin that demands outward display 
Yet, there's a spirituality to the law that governs not just our manners and customs and actions, but governs our thoughts and intentions and desires. And here's the wonder. Christ is spotless through and through. That's not true of anyone here. It's not true of the newest born child. It's not true of the purest saint of God. Everyone here is tainted. Everyone here has a record of sins past, has present sinful desires, and has a future that more or less will manifest sin remaining in this life. But if you can think of it, the leper comes to the high priest and is searched over for a spot. Is the leprosy still there? Are there signs still of this clinging illness? Well, if you think of Christ... You can search him outwardly, his speech and actions. And not only will you never find him rebelling against the law of God, you'll never find him not doing exactly what the law required. He fulfills it in all of the words ever spoken, in all of the actions ever done. He also fulfills it in every word not spoken and in every action not done. Because you'll know, of course, children will know this, as they study the catechism, summarizing the scriptures, that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And as the believer grows and matures, the Lord by His grace starts and and continues His work of keeping them from the transgressing of God's law more and more. But his soul becomes increasingly aware that there is that what the scriptures testify of sins of omission. That it's not just that I'm not to do certain things, but it is that I am uh, to do certain things as well. I'm to bless those who curse us. How many times have we been cursed by others and refrained from blessing them? How many times have we refrained from praying for others who have been cruel to us? How many times have we failed to visit widows in their distress? How many times have we failed to care for the orphans that are near to us? How many times we fail to give honor to those who bear authority over us? You see, the law requires that we do certain things and not just refrain from doing certain evil things. And the wonder is Christ never sinned. You inspect Him outwardly and all that He's doing is always perfectly conformed to the Word of God. And all that He's not doing is perfectly demanded by the law of God but you can search him inwardly and his thoughts and his desires and the inclination of his will is always in perfect harmony to what God requires. So that to read for a moment that Christ was made a curse is to read something that ought to evoke a sense of wonder. Why should this one, this spotless one, out and in, thoroughly through, Why is it that he should suffer the condemnation of God? Well, notice, it speaks of this. He was made a curse for us. It speaks of this work of substitution. It doesn't say he deserved to be cursed, but that he was made a curse. And it wasn't for his sin, It was for us, the people of God. And so what we have here is a testimony of what elsewhere is shown to us, the spotless Lamb of God receiving the sins and the just punishment of those sins for His people. You have images of this throughout the Scriptures, right? You can remember that there's the high priest who takes the lamb and he takes his hands and he places them upon his head. And what does he do? He confesses the sins of Israel over that lamb, which in itself is guiltless of any defilement, of any wickedness, of any transgression. And yet God is appointing that as a testimony of what Christ should do. And then you see the connection when John sees Christ and points him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, and listen, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so what John's getting at there, John the Baptist 
is getting at is that he's not just the Lamb of God for the Jews. He's the Lamb of God for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. He's not just the sacrifice for the Jews, but for all people in all nations appointed by God unto salvation. He is the Savior of the world. And he's the one upon whom the iniquity has been laid. You see this, of course, in Isaiah 53. This is the very point of all that is bound up in Isaiah 53. You'll see it with this in mind. He was made a curse for us. What's happening? He is suffering. And so you'll notice verse 4. He hath borne our griefs. He's bearing them as a burden upon his shoulder. He's carrying our sorrows. He is, verse 5, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. Notice verse 6. Whereas all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, yet the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so all of the guilt... All of the sin and transgression that cries out endlessly, constantly, God, bring forth your curse upon me. God takes all of it and he transfers it to Christ. But he doesn't transfer it to Christ in some way just to sort of throw it away. But he transfers it to Christ under the principle of divine justice. This bill, this debt must be paid. And Christ bears that. In other words, he's not just bearing the guilt, but as this passage is reminding us, he's bearing the curse that is for that guilt and is held forth most clearly and tangibly as such because as it is written, cursed be every, is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So here is the curse of the law graciously transferred to the one who is pure, righteous, spotless, and holy. Whereas you and I deserve the unending, enduring wrath of God because of our sin. God has transferred our guilt unto Christ. And with that, in the words of Zechariah, he says, Awake, O sword, against the man that is my fellow. And he executes divine justice upon the crown and through the soul and consuming the body of Christ Jesus so that he has made a whole burnt offering. He's consumed in all of the agonizing wrath justly executed against now him. How just is that? Most just. Because God has transferred sin to him. And Christ is making that payment. But though that is just, that God might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth on Christ Jesus, it comes to us most graciously. Think of this for a moment. It's not as if we gather up our sins and we somehow hurl it onto Christ and we've said, you're going to be our substitute. It's not as if we've struck a bargain with God and said, here's the way that I get out of it. The whole economy of this way is planned and executed by God Himself. God is the one who made Christ a curse. For us. God is the one who, if we could say it this way, devised this plan. And God is the one who executed this plan. And so it is, as we sang earlier, Psalm 40, I delight to do what? Thy will. It's your will. I delight to do it, Christ says. And so this whole work of cursing our sins by cursing another man is the work of God. And as such, it leaves us, wonder at this, it leaves us without the faintest whisper of guilt to answer. Nothing is left in our account. Everything is removed. 
Every demand of the law has now been answered because Christ was truly, fully, personally, really cursed for our sins. Whereas our sins demand the curse, Christ took the whole of the curse for us. Whereas confused and wicked men can turn this into an argument for carelessness in holy things, for the believer it turns it into a joyous, rejoicing obedience that now we're moved by love to obey such a one who loved us. Well, this leads us to, thirdly, a blessed curse. Strange to put those words together because the opposite of a curse is a blessing. But you'll notice it's by means of this curse that the blessing of God comes to us. So by means of Christ crucified, the blessings bound up in the covenant of grace. Here under the scriptural statement, the blessing of Abraham comes unto the Gentiles. Now, cultural or contextually, this is important because Galatia was a region of Gentiles. And so, historically, there was this season of trial that faced the church. Do we require the Gentiles to observe all the Jewish rites and customs? Do we require the Gentiles to do these things? And Paul is saying, by no means. Because the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles by Christ cursed for us. And of course, Paul makes the other argument. You know, when was it that Abraham was justified? He was justified before circumcision. He was justified before the institution of those things. He was justified before the Mosaic economy. All of those things remind us that the blessing of Abraham, which came to Abraham by grace through faith, comes to us today in the same way, by grace through faith. So notice, the blessing consists in two things. Firstly, that Christ's curse delivers us from our curse. And so it's written, verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's because the curse of the law that was after us is put then by God's divine grace upon Christ so that what the law demands for payment has been fully satisfied. We live in days where illustrations have changed a bit, but we still live, of course, in days where there is debt incurred. Perhaps in our day, more debt than ever has been incurred than previous generations. We see this. It's a staggering figure. You can look online and you can see the nation's debt, which if you look at the counters, just continuing to rack up endlessly. We can look at how many people are in debt in our nation today. And this with the advantage of, uh, with, with the, the, the coming of credit cards and other such things unwisely used and people living beyond their means accrues great debt unto themselves. Student loans and other things that are just racking, pouring up debt such that people try to evade it and they silence their phones and they change their email accounts and they try to get away from that constant, constant flow of reminders. You owe us money. And the fear, of course, is when we owe money that we can't pay back. But what a delight it is if we can look to our debtors and see we owe nothing. Well, brethren, here it is spiritually. The law of God says you owe endless, everlasting torment because of your sins. And we go and return to the law in justice and we say, what do I owe? And to the believer, the law says you owe nothing. And it's not because of something we've done. The law is answered by Christ. It has the note, all of it is answered because all of it has been paid by Christ. He hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. 
It delivers us from that curse because Christ was cursed. Because Christ paid what we demand, what God demanded of us. But you'll notice there's a second aspect to this blessing. That Christ's curse gives the whole spectrum of salvation. This is expressed in verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, that we, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Notice those two parallel expressions, the blessing of Abraham and the promise of the Spirit. Think of the blessing of Abraham, that he was declared righteous. And you have that, of course, mentioned when it is in verse 6, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham was declared righteous, justified. That blessing comes to us, how? Through Christ, by faith. And the Spirit comes. What does that mean? It doesn't mean all the nonsense that goes on by Babel today. It rather speaks of the whole economy of God's covenant being given over to us, that we would be strengthened in the inner man to trust and know and love Christ and to be governed by the inward work of the Spirit, that as Paul says elsewhere, that by the Spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the body and live. So the Spirit is given to us to the end of obedience, that by the Spirit we are given prayer and supplication. So the Spirit works within us to pray. The Spirit causes us to persevere. The Spirit opens to us the understanding of the whole counsel of God's Word. That by this simple testimony, the promise of the Spirit is embedded all of the riches of God's grace. So it's shorthand. For the whole of salvation is given to you because Christ was cursed. And what is it that, as it were, receives such blessing? Notice, it's absent of any word of your action, of your obedience, of your work, of your display. And it is by God's grace, through Jesus Christ, through faith. We come and we receive what He gives through Christ. And so it is that the believer stands blessed by the curse of the law being applied unto Christ. Brethren, as we close, here is tremendous help for the believer to remember well that every saving blessing comes to you by way of Jesus Christ. It doesn't excuse us from lack of diligence. It doesn't mean that we're to be careless but it does fix our attention upon the source of every blessing that comes. So as the Lord begins to make you more diligent, beware that you don't think, now I'm earning something more. Your very diligence is the fruit of Christ's work. The very activity of your soul in putting off sin and putting on righteousness is the purchased possession of Christ given to you. He's at work in you by means of His grace. And when it is that you look forward to certain desires that are warranted by God's Word, and perhaps there is personal fasting and prayer that is appointed, or corporate prayer and fasting appointed for other things, whereas we take and make use of the means, the means actually help focus our attention upon the source of all blessing. When we become diligent in our reading, and oh, who among us is not pricked in our hearts for how little time is spent in His Word, we can be subtly misled to think, well, I'm going to get at it, and I'm going to go through it, and by my work, I'm going to attain new things. But instead it is, we by the reading of God's Word, look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're peering unto Him by faith, saying, By means of your word, instruct me. By means of your word, sanctify me. By means of your word, advance me in holiness. Our whole attention is upon the person of work. Why is that? Because none of your works deliver you from the curse of the law. None of your works qualify you for the blessing of Abraham 
and the promise of the Spirit, all of that comes to you by the work of Christ received by faith. This is why Peter makes so much of the promise that there are exceeding precious promises that by faith in those promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature. We're brought into fellowship with God. It's why John opens his epistle, the first epistle, that he's holding forth fellowship with God in Christ by faith. It's why John in his gospel is saying again and again, these things are written that ye might believe. You see, faith is fundamental to all of the blessings to be enjoyed. Because faith is that which lays hold of Christ. In other words, we can say it. Andrew Bonner says in his work that uh, titled The Gospel Pointing to the Person of Christ. He says, in one sense, it's wrong of us to say it's faith that saves. If we divorce faith from Christ, because fundamentally it's Christ who saves who is embraced by faith. And so the scriptures again and again ever testify of faith, but not faith in some loose and careless and negligible way, but faith as it is attached to Christ. Think of it this way, children. It's hard to imagine this for now, but in a few months, the weather will warm and perhaps you'll be outside with a hose and ready to fill up a pool or spray your friends or whatever else it is. Now you might drag the hose out and you might get ready and with laughter on your face issuing from your uh, soul, uh, ready to spray your friends. And you, as it were, uh, pull the trigger on that part and nothing comes out. And you think, okay, what's happened? I turned the water on. I'm using the hose and this instrument to spray, but nothing's coming out. And you look back and you say, oh, I failed to connect the hose to the source of water. The point is, faith is nothing except it is attached, embracing Christ. Faith has no power of itself, no virtue in itself, nothing that makes God say, oh, you've got some, you know, sort of nebulous faith. Faith is a blessing as it embraces Christ because Christ is the one who has made a curse for us. And when it is that by faith we have Christ, it is then that we have all of the storehouse of treasures open to us. Is there an unbeliever present? Think for a moment. You have upon your head the curse of the law. You have the unswerving, unending, just punishment of God against you for your sins. Our society doesn't know what to do with capital punishment today. But you can think back to days when it was more prominent. And you can think of condemned criminals being led forth to the firing range or being led to the gallows. And there they stand. The hood is placed over them. And they hear perhaps the commander say, ready, aim, fire, knowing that the bullet will hit them, and that justly. They hear the hangman testifying, and they hear the last thing they'll ever hear when the mechanism is pulled, and their bodies shoot through the floor, and then they're strangled because of their guilt. What is that compared to the day that will come to you who is an unbeliever when God says, depart from me, ye accursed. You stand naked and exposed to the full wrath of God justly against you for your sin. Let me be very clear. You have no hope. There's none. 
You can try to climb into some mechanism of the world and think, by my works, I'll do this. I'll get better. I've neglected this law. I'll start doing this law. I've not been faithful to my wife or husband as I ought to. I'll start doing that. I've been negligent in church. I'll start going to church. I've not been reading my Bible. I'll start reading my Bible. And all of that will do absolutely nothing to atone for the whole backlog of your wickedness. Nor will it do anything to overcome the fact that you still look to yourself to be your own Savior. You stand cursed, not by the church. You stand cursed, not by the world. You stand cursed, not by the apostles, not by the angels of heaven. You stand cursed of God. And it's to God that you must give an account And it's from God that you will hear that condemnation issue forth with unrelenting justice. And when your shrieks begin and your howling commences, know this, that you are warned solemnly, clearly, fully that you have no hope in yourself and your only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ who says, come unto me. That's your hope. It's nothing with yourself. It's nothing with your obedience. It's nothing with your prayers. It's nothing with your actions. It's all in Christ. And if you stay off from fleeing to Him, it is so that God will unrelentingly punish you for the wickedness of your sins. But, O believer, We come in a moment to the table and whereas all that has been said should be true of us, yet we have this additional fact. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. It's true and right. Our consciences awaken when we sin and we think what fool, we think what shame is mine, And yet, brethren, here is the wonder of what is true before us. Christ says, I have paid all of it. I've paid for these sins that so cripple your conscience. I've answered for them. When you see your inconsistencies and your vows and all of your promises dashed because once more you've sinned, Christ says, that too I have paid for. Brethren, even in this world, the kindness shown by a stranger endears us to them. Strange, in this world, even an irrational animal may show us some degree of kindness and we become, in some sense, uh, kindly related to them. How much more that the God of heaven and earth and the person of His Son should take upon you, upon Him, what you owed, and says, I will pay it. And in doing so, I'll remove all of the curse and I'll provide all of the blessing. If that's so, brethren, here is cause for you and I to eat and drink the instituted signs of His being cursed for us, which has turned unto us our salvation. Would you stand with me for prayer?